the reasons that we sing together every Sunday is to reaffirm the truths of the songs that we sing to ourselves. And then as you hear the congregation singing around you, people are teaching and reaffirming those truths to you as you're listening. And so I am confident that some came in this morning and your heart wants to affirm what we just sang. Christ is enough for me, but it's hard. It's really hard when the difficulties of life come in to say, even if I lose this, or even if this is a struggle, Christ is enough. He alone is sufficient for me. But we come and we sing and we sit under the word to reaffirm those things and to bolster our belief in those truths. And that's exactly what Colossians says, that we teach one another with songs and hymns and spiritual songs. And so that's what we have done as we sing those truths and reaffirm them every single Sunday. So be encouraged. Your faith is being built as you do that week after week. It doesn't all happen in one pop when you're here in some magical, mystical experience, but it is something that happens over and over again, and your faith will be built over time. And so we're thankful for the the work that the Lord is doing and thankful for our musicians getting here early every Sunday and practicing so that they can lead us to reaffirm those truths and to honor the Lord as we sing together. You can open up to Exodus 24. That's where we'll be. But keep a a finger stretched and ready because we're going to flip around quite a bit this morning in, in this passage. When I was a kid... I only ever lied to my parents, honest truth, only ever lied to my parents a couple of times, and they could affirm that. And one of those times that I lied to my parents had to do with the tabernacle in Exodus. I know, that's weird. It is. It's really odd. It's strange. But here's what happened. I was in sixth grade at a Christian school, and my sixth grade Bible teacher had taught us faithfully, imagine teaching a group of sixth graders, including sixth grade boys, about the parts of the tabernacle, the specific details, and she had done that, and she had prepared us well for a test over this material, and when we came to the test, sure enough, I flipped my page over, pretty confident on the front half, and noticed on the back was a diagram of the tabernacle, completely blank, and we were expected to label all the different parts of the tabernacle. Well, I didn't know any of them, not a single one. And so I looked at that back page for a minute and thought, well, I don't know any of these. This can't be that much of a percentage of the test. And so I turned the thing in with the entire back page blank. Needless to say, I got a 55 on the test, which was not a passing grade. It was quite well below it. Well, when I brought the test home to my parents, they asked me how I got such a bad score on it and why I'd left the entire back page blank. And I said to them, well, my teacher didn't tell us this was going to be on the test and that we had to learn it, which definitely wasn't true at all. Now, there's a particular problem with my situation as a sixth grader at a Christian school. My parents happened to teach at that Christian school. (laughs) And so, not thinking this through very well, I straight up lied about one of their colleagues, and 
they said, well, my mom listened to this and said, well, if she didn't give you the, prepare you for it, I'm going to call her right now and ask her why she didn't prepare you for that. And as my mom turned around to walk to the phone, I panicked and I said, well, well wait a minute, that's not exactly how that happened and ended up confessing my lie to her and suffering deep and lasting consequences <laughs> over my lie, which I can tell you about some other time. In my sixth grade head, as I was listening to her teach about it, the tabernacle was a rather strange part of the Bible story and certainly not something that I needed to bother myself with. I mean, I had a lot of other bigger concerns. And maybe some of you feel that way. And maybe some of you are sitting there this morning going, what is the tabernacle? I've never heard of this before. And if you are, that's okay. That is completely fine. We're going to try to make this as clear and as interesting as possible the next couple of weeks, this week and next week. So when most people think about the book of Exodus, there are lots of interesting stories in the book of Exodus, right? I mean, there are classic Bible stories in this book. I mean, you've got the ten plagues. You've got the Passover lamb. You've got the Red Sea being parted and Israel going through. You've got the Ten Commandments. All of these are just staple pillar Bible stories. Almost any person who's been in church for any length of time has heard these stories. All of those events that I just listed happen in the first 20 chapters of the book of Exodus. But if you'll notice, there are 40 chapters in the book of Exodus. And so we still have half of the book coming after the Ten Commandments in Exodus chapter 20. Now, the last couple of weeks, we've been looking at God's covenant with Israel, the book of the covenant, in chapters 19 through 24, and that includes the Ten Commandments or the Ten Words. And we saw last time that God's purpose in giving Israel this covenant was so that they would have a relationship with him and to bring them into fellowship with him. He wants them to be his people and he wants to dwell in their midst and have fellowship with them and for them to know him as their God. And that was shown, that purpose and that reality was shown as those 74 leaders, including Moses and Aaron, and her and others came up the mountain and they met with God and had a meal of fellowship with him. I want you to look at Exodus 24, verses 9 through 11. We saw this last week. Then Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and 70 of the elders of Israel went up and they saw the God of Israel. There was under his feet, as it were, a pavement of sapphire stone, like the very heaven for clearness. And he did not lay his hand on the chief men of the people of Israel. They beheld God and ate and drank. And the point here is that after the covenant has been confirmed and ratified, the result of the covenant is that these men, as the representative of the entire nation, representatives, they get to fellowship with God. They have a meal of communion with the God of the universe. That's the end purpose, and that's the end result of this covenant of the Ten Words, of the Ten Commandments. All of this is aiming for that end. Now, this meal was temporary. Eventually, they stopped eating, and Moses and Joshua will continue up Mount Sinai to receive further instructions from God, and these other men will go back down. Moses and Joshua are going to get the Ten Commandments on a stone tablet 
from God himself. Look at verses 12 and 13. The Lord said to Moses, come up to me on the mountain and wait there that I may give you the tablets of stone with the law and the commandment which I have written for their instruction. So Moses rose with his assistant Joshua and Moses went up into the mountain of God. And so they go up the mountain to receive further instructions and the rest of these guys return to the people to lead and oversee the people while Moses is gone. Look at verse 14. And he said to the elders, wait here for us until we return to you. And behold, Aaron and her are with you who are leaders. Whoever has a dispute, let him go to them. So they are to oversee the people while Moses is gone. Now what happens to Moses? Look at verses 15 through 18. Then Moses went up on the mountain and the cloud covered the mountain. The glory of the Lord dwelt on Mount Sinai and the cloud covered it six days. And on the seventh day, he called to Moses out of the midst of the cloud. Now the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a devouring fire on the top of the mountain in the sight of the people of Israel. Moses entered the cloud and went up on the mountain. And Moses was on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. And so Moses goes up to meet with God and he spends quite a long time up there. 40 days and 40 nights is a long period of time. So what did God tell Moses while he was up there? This is where I wanted to connect the whole thing. If the purpose of God's covenant with Israel was so that God would come and dwell among them and be with them, and they would be in close proximity to the God of Israel to know him and worship him, then God here is going to tell Moses how that's going to happen. How is God going to come and dwell among his people and reside with them? That is a glorious hope, and that's something the Israelites would have been thrilled about. And so God is going to tell Moses exactly how that's going to take place. And that's what we're getting to in chapters 25 all the way to 31. We're not going to read all of that. You can go back and read it on your own, and I would definitely encourage you to do that. But in these chapters, God is speaking to Moses, and he's revealing to him his plans, his building plans, his site plans for his house, which that house is going to allow God to come and dwell among the Israelites. Now, I want you to flip forward with me to the end of this section, chapter 31 and verse 18. I want to show you how this whole section is framed up. 31 and verse 18. And he gave, this is God, he gave to Moses, when he had finished speaking with him on Mount Sinai, the two tablets of the testimony, tablets of stone written with the finger of of God. And so God is done speaking. He has revealed to Moses everything he needs to know about building the tabernacle and consecrating the priests for service in that tabernacle. And now he's giving him the two tablets of stone and he is to return back to Israel. Now, interestingly enough, I want you to look down at chapter 32 and verse 1 and look what happens. We'll get to this in a few weeks here. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron, who was, if you remember, sent back down so he could oversee the people, and said to them, Up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know 
what has become of him. Amazing. And we'll get into chapters 32 to 34, which is an unbelievable experience and a change for the nation of Israel from committing to obey everything that God had given them, all the laws, to suddenly flipping on a head and creating a God to worship because they don't know where Moses is. But we'll get to that. But this whole section before we get there, chapters 25 to 31, is describing to us the tabernacle, the place where God is going to come and to dwell among his people. Now, I told you to keep your finger ready. Flip back to chapter 25 and let me show you how God begins this. Chapter 25, verses 1 through 7. Here's an introduction to the plans that God has for Moses. The Lord, or for Moses to communicate to the people. The Lord said to Moses, verse 1, Speak to the people of Israel that they take for me a contribution. From every man whose heart moves him, you shall receive the contribution for me. And this is the contribution that you shall receive from them. All right, so he's going to tell him all of these different raw materials. This is what I need. Gold, silver, and bronze, blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twined linen, goat's hair, tanned ram skins, goat skins, acacia wood, oil for the lamp, spices for the anointing oil and for the fragrant incense, onyx stones and stones for setting for the ephod and for the breastpiece. And so God tells the people, look, donate these materials for my house and for the priests who are going to oversee my house. And all of these are going to be used in the construction of it. And I want you to give, not because you're coerced to give, but I want you to give out of the overflow and the generosity of your heart. And verses 8 and 9 now give us the purpose for the materials and for this house. Look at verse 8. And let them make me a sanctuary, and look at this, that I may dwell in their midst. Verse 9, exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and of all its furniture, so you shall make it. God, verse 8 says, is going to come and dwell among his people. Now, stop right there. That is a huge deal. This is no small thing. This is massive for the people of Israel. Let me point out that the entire rest of the book of Exodus has to do with the plans and the construction of this building. And that is significant. Why would God devote so much attention to this for the people of Israel? And I would even say all of the events of the first 20 chapters of Exodus, all the stuff that you read about in the kids' storybook Bibles and that you've heard all the time and they make movies about, nobody makes a movie about the tabernacle, but all of that points to this. All of it has its goal and its end here. Why does God redeem them? So he can come and dwell among them. This is a big deal. For an Israelite to get the chance to be close to God, to have the God that redeemed them, the God of the universe, the only true God, live among them was an incredible experience. It should have been an incredible experience. If you go forward and read some of the Psalms, you can see the Israelites and the psalmist express the wonder and the excitement of just getting the chance to be close to God through the tabernacle and through the temple. 
I want you to listen to a few of these psalms. I'm going to read all of Psalm 84. Look how he begins here. How lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord of hosts. I mean, what's he talking about there? He's talking about the tabernacle and the temple, the place where God lives among his people. My soul longs, yes, faints for the courts of the Lord. This is a passionate person about being close to God. My heart and flesh sing for joy to the living God. Even the sparrow finds a home and the swallow a nest for herself where she may lay her young at your altars, O Lord of hosts, my King and my God. Blessed are those who dwell in your house, ever singing your praise, Selah. Blessed are those whose strength is in you in whose heart are the highways to Zion. Why go to Zion? Because that's where God is. He dwells there. As they go through the valley of Baca, they make it a place of springs. The early rain also covers it with pools. They go from strength to strength. Each one appears before God in Zion. There's more. O Lord God of hosts, hear my prayer. Give ear, O God of Jacob. Selah. Behold our shield, O God. Look on the face of your anointed. And then here's the, the verses that everybody knows. For a day in your courts, just in your courts, near Baha'i, for a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. For the Lord God is a sun and shield. The Lord bestows favor and honor. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. O Lord of hosts, blessed is the one who trusts in you. I mean, this is not a, a casual encounter here. This is someone who is absolutely passionate about just being in the courts and being a doorkeeper in the house of God to be in close proximity to him. Another couple of verses from Psalm 43. Send out your light and your truth. Let them lead me. Let them bring me to your holy hill and to your dwelling. Then I will go to the altar of God, to God my exceeding joy. And I will praise you with a lyre, O God, my God. Exceeding joy. Psalm 46. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. What's so special about the city? It's this, that God is there. She shall not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. The nations rage, the kingdoms totter. He utters his voice, the earth melts. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Selah. God's presence brings delight, joy, satisfaction, security, and hope. There's a reason that the tabernacle is so significant in the book of Exodus. And these psalmists understand this. Think of it this way. Humans, if you haven't noticed, need water to live. You and I do. And when you go without water for any length of time, you get this urgent, physical, gut-level sensation called thirst. And it can be overwhelming. And it lets you know there is a need that is not being met. You know that your body is in a state where it lacks a simple base level need, something vital to its continued existence, and that vital thing is water. 
I was working outside the other day, and I didn't realize how thirsty I was until I came in and I got a glass of cold water and I began to drink it. And you have all had this experience. But there's this moment when you're drinking that glass of water when a real human need is met. And maybe you didn't even know that you had that need because you were thinking about other things and you were busy and you were working and all of a sudden you realize, I think I'm thirsty. And you start to drink that water and there is this pleasure in downing that glass of cold water that lets you know and indicates to you that there is a significant need that has now been met. That's the delight. That's the pleasure. That's the joy and the security and the hope that I'm talking about with God dwelling in the midst of his people. So, when you think about the tabernacle, all right, when you read later on, chapters 25 to 31, and you get into all these details, don't think about some strange ancient tent that had sacrifices and a mysterious room called the Holy of Holies where only one person could go once a year. Think of this as God offering the water of life to his people. And he offers it for their joy and for their good and for their satisfaction that they can be with him and he will be with them. Now, as we think about that, I want to give you three reasons to delight in God's presence with us this week and next week. We'll hit the first one of these this week and the next two next week. Three reasons to delight in God's presence with us, and we're going to learn this from our study of the tabernacle. First of all, the first reason is that God desires to dwell with his people. Don't take this for granted. Notice the emphasis here. The first word, God desires. He is the initiator. And I say this because the entire construction of the tabernacle and the fact that God's presence reside with his, resides with his people is a gift of pure grace. God is the one setting this up. He's the one initiating this. He redeemed them for a purpose. He wants to be with his people for their good and for his honor and his glory. Look at chapter 25 and verse 8 again. And let them make me a sanctuary. Why? What's the purpose of all of this? That I may dwell in their midst. Now I want you to notice that word sanctuary there. This is the word in Hebrew that will be used throughout this section that is normally translated tabernacle. This is where we get the name tabernacle from. Instead of saying tabernacle, you could also say a living place, a dwelling place. That's the emphasis that is being given with this word tabernacle. Now, something interesting that I did not know until I started studying this whole section this week. This word tabernacle is used throughout chapters 25 to 27. And it's used in those chapters as the different elements, pieces, parts of the tabernacle that I couldn't label in sixth grade, but that are given to us here are described, all right? And the emphasis on this word is the fact that God has come to live among his people. It's on God's 
desiring to be with them. His initiative. It's on God's approach to mankind. It's on this being his dwelling place, his house. Now, we'll get to chapters 28 to 31 next week, but I want to show you something in this that frames up our whole discussion of the tabernacle and how we understand it. I want you to flip to chapter 27 and verses 20 and 21. This is where the second part of God's presentation to Moses begins. And I want you to see if you can notice what word is used for this structure here. Verse 20, you shall command the people of Israel that they bring to you pure beaten olive oil for the light that a lamp may regularly be set up to burn in the tent of meeting outside the veil that is before the testimony, Aaron and his sons shall tend it from evening to morning before the Lord. It shall be a statute forever to be observed throughout their generations by the people of Israel. Now notice it's not called the tabernacle here. It's called the tent of meeting. And if you read through chapters 28 to 31, you will see very consistently that it is called the tent of meeting. Two different terms are used for the same building. Why is it called the tent of meeting in this section? Well, this section describes Aaron and his sons and all of the priests, those who will be the mediators from the people to God. And so this next section is talking about man's approach to God. So the first section is describing God coming to dwell among his people, this being his living space, his house. And the second section is describing the ways in which man can now approach God, both sides of this. So let's talk, first of all, about the tabernacle or the dwelling place as it is described in chapters 25 to 27. First of all, look at chapter 25 and verse 10. Here you have the most important piece of this. I should have at least been able to label this. Let's be honest. Verse 10. They shall make an ark of ecclesia wood. Two cubits and a half shall be its length, a cubit and a half its breadth, and a cubit and a half its height. This is the most important piece of furniture. And this is why God begins describing this one here. The ark is basically a small wooden box that is covered with gold. And they're going to place the stone tablets with the ten words on them inside the ark. And those ten tablets show that God has made a covenant with Israel. Look at verse 16. And you shall put into the ark the testimony that I shall give you. Those two tablets or the tablet that God gives to them. On top of this wooden box that is covered with gold, there is a lid that is made to fit exactly on it. And this lid has two golden cherubim on top of it. And those two golden cherubim are facing each other and their wings are extended out over the center of the ark, over the center of the box. Now the space between those two cherubim is translated here as mercy seat, but it's probably better to call this a place of atonement. You can look at verse 20. The cherubim shall spread out their wings above, overshadowing the mercy seat with their wings, their faces one to another. Toward the mercy seat shall, be the, shall the faces of the cherubim be. This 
The reason we call it a place of atonement is this is the place right here above the ark in between the two cherubim. This is the place where God will meet with his people, but he only meets with his people through the blood of the covenant that he has made with them. Look at verse 22. There I will meet with you. And from above the mercy seat or the place of atonement, from between the two cherubim that are on the ark of the testimony, I will speak with you about all that I will give you in commandment for the people of Israel. This is where God meets with his people. And this is the only piece of furniture that is placed in the innermost room of the tabernacle. This is the place where God's presence permanently resides. Now, the tabernacle, as we've talked about over and over again, is the place where God dwells. I also want you to think of it this way. This is the place where God comes down to earth and heaven and earth meet. There's another passage of scripture where the Ark of the Covenant is called the footstool of the throne of God. Look at this in Psalm 132. Let us go to his dwelling place. Let us worship at his footstool. Arise, O Lord, and go to your resting place, you and the Ark of your might. The ark is thought of in Scripture as the footstool of God. And so spatially, here's what I want you to think of. This is an extension of God's kingly throne in heaven where God comes to earth and rules over his people by his covenant with them as he resides among them. This is the space where heaven meets earth. And you really need to keep that concept in mind for when we jump forward to the New Testament heaven meets earth. Now there are two other pieces of furniture that are described in chapter 25. This is the table for bread and the lampstand for light. Both of these are placed just outside of the holiest place, which houses the ark, but they're still inside the tabernacle proper, which is this tent, uh, cube-shaped tent right in the Uh, well, not right in the middle, in the back of the whole structure, the courtyard structure. We'll get into that in a minute. But they're placed just outside of the holiest place in the holy place. These two, the table and the lampstand, were not accessible to just anyone. They were accessible to the priests. This area was only for priests to go into. The table held both bread and wine and indicated that those who came were welcomed into God's presence for a fellowship meal. That was their purpose there. Interestingly, the priests were the ones who ate the bread, I think indicating to us that God always graciously provides for his people. The lampstand was kept lit at all times. This is why they needed the oil, and it was kept lit at all times to show that God doesn't ever go to sleep. He's always present. The lights are never out. He is here. The lampstand also resembled a tree, and there's every indication that it represented the tree of life from Genesis chapter 2. Now, as you move to chapter 26, you get the tabernacle itself. This is the tent that covered these three items of furniture, the holiest place and the holy place. This is the tent that covered them. So what you have basically with this tent is you have one room that is divided in half by a veil or an inner curtain. Look at chapter 26, verses 31 through 35. And you shall make a veil of blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twined linen. 
It shall be made with cherubim skillfully worked into it. And you shall hang it on four pillars of ecclesia overlaid with gold, with hooks of gold on four bases of silver. And you shall hang the veil from the clasps and bring the ark of the testimony in there within the veil. And the veil shall separate for you the holy place from the most holy. You shall put the mercy seat, the place of atonement, on the ark of the testimony in the most holy place, and you shall set the table outside the veil and the lampstand on the south side of the tabernacle opposite the table, and you shall put the table on the north side. Pretty clear instructions there. Only the priests were allowed inside this tent, the tabernacle proper here. Everyone else had to remain in the courtyard, which was outside of this tent. The courtyard is described in chapter 27. And along with the courtyard and the height of that and all that they had to do to erect that courtyard, you also have the bronze altar, which is described. And this is placed in the courtyard. This is where sacrifices were offered. The courtyard was the area where anyone was allowed to come. People would bring their sacrifices and the priests would offer them. And then a meal would be eaten showing fellowship and reconciliation with Yahweh God. Now, overall, I know you've been waiting for pictures. I have them. Here's a couple of pictures, all right? This is an actual place. Maybe some of you that have been to Israel have been here. It's uh, a copy, uh, exact proportions of the tabernacle, what it would have looked like. Uh, It's out in the desert um, in Israel. And so there's a, a far away picture of it with the courtyard around, and you can see the tabernacle proper there in the in the center of that, placed toward the back end of it, the west end facing east. And then here's a shot from inside. You can see the altar there uh, and then the tabernacle in the far end of this. It was always put up this way, on the, the tabernacle in the western end of the courtyard facing east, which there are some significant reasons for that um, regarding the Garden of Eden and all of that, and we will get to that next week. But eventually, we read that Israel's entire camp, as they moved through the wilderness, was intentionally and specifically structured and set up around the tabernacle. Certain tribes were on certain sides of the tabernacle, and the Levites were the closest to the tabernacle. And all of this was done so that God's presence would be the center of Israel's camp and the defining feature of their lives as a nation. Now, keep in mind here, we're talking and have talked the entire time about how God desires to dwell with his people and what a wonder and a joy and an amazing thing that is. And yet, I have just described to you this structure that bars certain people and nearly everyone from actually entering into the presence of God. So why both of those? Why does God come to dwell among his people and yet keeps almost everyone at arm's length from his presence? And when someone has to enter into his presence, it's done very carefully and only once a year. Why are both of those true? Why set it up like this? And in addition to that question, why all the details? (laughs) Why the specifics of clasps and materials and all the details of the construction of this house. Why spend all this time here? Well, there's a reason for both of those things and an answer to both of those questions. And both of those questions, the answer has to do with God's holiness and sinful 
man's, rebellious man's ability to come near to a holy God. Let me remind you, we are in quite a predicament as human beings, are we not? Think about this. Our greatest good, what we were created for, is to know God and to be near Him. And yet, in the Garden of Eden, and you see this with Adam and Eve, our sin has exiled us from His presence. We are now on the outside, and we can't even look in. We are barred from Him, and we are kept from Him. And it's because of that dynamic of our sinfulness and God's intrinsic holiness that he must only allow that which is holy or set apart to be in his presence. And the tabernacle teaches Israel that in unique ways. Now, one of the things that may not be readily apparent when you read this, and I did not know this until I started reading on it over the last year or so, is that when you read these descriptions of the tabernacle, there's a specific way in which the materials are used, and there's an order to them. The closer you get to the Ark of the Covenant, the more expensive and valuable the materials get. Gold is used for the Ark, but bronze and silver are used more as you move further away from God's presence. And to the Israelite, as they saw all of this, this would have indicated to them the sanctity and uniqueness of God and the responsibility to be holy as one got closer to him. Another interesting thing about the tabernacle is the words that are used to describe the patterns in sewing for the linen and for the curtains. Look with me at chapter 26 and verse 1, and there's a reason for this. Moreover, you shall make the tabernacle with ten curtains of fine twined linen and blue and purple and scarlet yarns. You shall make them with cherubim skillfully worked into them. And so the curtains around the Holy of Holies are woven using multiple colors and with cherubim woven into them. Now, I am no seamstress. I don't sew, ever. Occasionally I can get a button back on a pair of pants but this sounds challenging, right? To, to weave something together using multiple colors of linen, of yarn, and weaving a cherubim into that as you're putting it all together sounds like something that is very, very difficult. But as you move out away from the Holy of Holies, it changes. As you get a little bit further out, now you have multiple colors woven together, but no angelic figures woven in. And then as you get further out, you have simple linen, all of the same color, and then ultimately you have animal skins. The point of this is the same as the building materials. The entire structure is set up to highlight God's holiness and uniqueness. And it's put on display in the construction of his house. And so that's why you have all these details. That's why it goes into this. All of the rituals, all of the practices, all of the items, everything associated with the tabernacle down to the details communicated to Israel that God is holy and that human sin must be dealt with before one can draw near to this holy God. But at the end of the day, even with all of this and with 
the difficulty of approaching a holy God for sinful mankind, even with that reality, God still desires to be with his people. And the tabernacle teaches the initiative of God in making this happen. Now, as much as I tried to paint this picture of God wanting to be with his people and desiring to pursue his people and dwell among them, and you see this in the Old Testament, and you see the joy with which Israelites thought about the tabernacle and thought about God's presence and thought about him being with them, it is shocking to see what God has done for us in the Lord Jesus Christ. John 1. And the Word became flesh and dwelt. And some of you know this, but that word dwelt is tabernacled. He came to reside among his people, to be with them. And we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. God came to earth, and instead of just dwelling among his people in a tent with all of these rituals barring the way, rightfully so, to a holy God, he became a human being in order to communicate and bring grace upon grace to us. So let me go back to the psalm we read earlier, right? I like to think about this psalmist writing, knowing about the tabernacle and the temple. Psalm 84. How lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord of hosts. My soul longs, yes, faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and flesh sing for joy to the living God. Joy over the tabernacle and the opportunity to be in God's presence. And I just can't help but wonder that if this psalmist had this reaction of joy and longing for God's presence that was mediated by the tabernacle and the temple, how great would his delight be in knowing that God became a man and decisively and finally opened up the way, tore the veil into God's presence at his death on the cross. He was the final Passover lamb, the final sacrifice that was offered on the altar. And now we all have full and complete access to him and our sins have been fully forgiven. I can't help but think what this psalmist would how he would react to that good news and that knowledge of what has been done. There was glory in the Old Covenant, Paul says in 2 Corinthians, but how much more glory in what the Lord Jesus Christ has done for us. And so I think as we study the tabernacle, there should be a, a profound delight and joy to ponder this reality, that God has graciously desired communion with us and has done this, has come to earth as a man to make that happen, to come to dwell among his people and bring them into his presence. What a joy to consider that reality. Let's pray. Father, we're so thankful for this. We now have full access to you. Even right now, we, we come into your presence, the holy creator God of the universe, 
And we are sinful people, and yet through the Lord Jesus Christ, as the final Passover lamb, our sins are forgiven. We are seen as righteous and holy in your sight, and now we come into your presence as a good father. We seek your face, and we know you through the revelation that we have of Jesus. And so we're so thankful for this reality. Help it to shape us and form us into people who are joyful because we dwell in your presence. Thank you for all you've done. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for coming and tabernacling among us. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.